Welcome to Standing in Her Power Global. I am your host, Penny Sophocles. In this podcast, I speak to unique and interesting women to hear their stories and their individual approaches to life and work. Each one offers living examples of how women are evolving our society for the better. They demonstrate what they can do, you can do too. Welcome to Standing in Her Power Global podcast. This is Penny Sophocles, your host. I'm delighted today to be speaking with Claire Downham, popularly known as the Queen of Calm. She has been working in the last three years using the Three Principles training program to facilitate insights for people to move from stress, overwhelm and anxiety to calm, balance, clarity and clarity with ease. Before this, Claire was a teacher in the primary educational system for 20 years, being a leader in that field, and in the final five years, being a head teacher in a primary school. So welcome, Claire. Hi, Penny. Lovely to be here. Claire, tell me a little bit about yourself, beginning with um, your family and the context in which you were brought up. Yeah, so um, my... In my very early years, my dad was out of work most. So I'm um, there's me and my brother, just one brother. He's three years younger than me. My parents were both from probably working class backgrounds. My dad maybe not quite working class. I think his family would have called themselves more middle class. He went to boarding school, my dad, and he was in the Navy and then he worked in engineering. He wasn't very there when I was growing up, when I was very young. He was away working quite a lot of the time. So for in my early years, my mum was raising us um, and didn't work. She was a stay-at-home mum. But then when I was, well, I think I must have been about seven. My brother was maybe about four. My mum did a degree. Um, she went off to Leeds University. Wow. She did um, a politics degree, got first. Um, she's a very bright woman, my mum. She'd just never been given that opportunity when she was younger, but she decided to go off and do do her degree when we were kids. I have a really fond memory of jumping in and out of the lifts at Leeds University that didn't stop. You just had to jump into them. And off oh, really? Went. Yeah, that was a thing. Before we had health and safety, you know, Penny. Oh, really? <laughs> Quite the same way. In Sad the 70s and 80s, didn't we? Yeah, bonkers, absolutely bonkers. Um, so, yeah, so I was a bright girl, I would say, probably mm-hmm. the best way to describe me. Um, I don't know that... I don't remember where the expectations came of me, but they were high. Right. Um, And I remember, but I remember always feeling like I had to work really hard. So I was always top of the class, you know, in my younger years. But education seemed to get harder and harder as I got older. Um, And and that was because I found out much later I have a condition called Erlen syndrome, which is a... um, What? What is that? Erlen syndrome. Erlen syndrome. L-E-N, which is a scotopic sensitivity. It's very similar to dyslexia where you you have movement and um, blurring on the page when you read black print on white paper, which, of course, is pretty much everything. Um, I didn't know I had that till I was in my early 30s. But but all through school, I worked very, very hard. I was a hardworking girl. Mm. And I, 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 but I don't think I ever quite felt good enough. I think that has underpinned a lot of the way I've been in life. Um, I think I was traditionally critically parented. 70s and 80s parenting I think it just was a lot of that a lot of that kind of I call it treat them mean keep them keen parenting 
Just kind really? of tell your kids they're not good enough enough times, they'll become better. <laughs> you know, the <that laughs> area right. of parenting. Yeah. Um, so I grew up with that criticism, I think. Um, it's still, I would still, it's still probably the way my mum's the only one still alive and she would still probably veer in that direction, I think. Right, um, right. Yeah, but, it's, but I would say just a, a, a family who became more wealthy as I grew up. My, my right. dad came, my mum went out to work after she'd been to university. So then there was more money in the pot and we moved from, um, a, a working to middle class area to a much more kind of affluent area in Leeds. I was brought up in probably what you'd call the poshest bit of Leeds. Um, and um, and my, my dad then started his own business and my mum started her own business. So they were both actually self-employed in the end, having been both, having both worked um, right. a big part of their careers. So they're yeah, really so entrepreneurs. Be, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. but I probably don't really, haven't really probably realised that until later on in my life and I've gone oh yeah my, both my parents were self-employed and now I'm self-employed so that's interesting how that's worked out um but yeah I went to university because that's what you did that's I, what I you did in in the context of the of, of your family in that yeah in the, that well I think just in the context of my school as well bright girls go to university I think bright girls have got a lot of different opportunities now for apprenticeships and other ways to navigate their place into you know their way into the workplace whereas Back then, I would say it wasn't whether you're going to university. If you're a bright girl, you're going to university, and it's just which one and what you're going to study when you get there. Mm, um, so good. that was, yeah, that was my. And how and how much was your focus about what you were educated in yours, and how much of that was the influence either of your school or your parents? <laughs> Great question. Because so when I so I was leaving school sort of in the late eighties. And there was a big push on women going into engineering. So I'd always studied, I'd always had a, a propensity towards science subjects, I think, because I did find reading and stuff unknown to me for the reason I had it. I found reading quite hard. And um, so I didn't veer towards those subjects that involved a lot, a lot of reading or writing. So I veered towards the sciences. Um, so I did maths, physics and chemistry A-levels. So, of course, when the engineering push came to get women into engineering, I jumped on that we were we were we weren't quite wined and dined but we were spoiled rotten this group of girls we were taken off to these residentials at university where we were you know fed nice food and shown how wonderful engineering was and I suspect the pound signs were quite a big draw they would be telling us how much we could earn as an engineer and I I bought into that and in fact, I then got a sponsorship from Roundtree Macintosh, as they were. They they mm -hmm. hadn't become Nestle at that point. Right. Uh, and I went off to do a year in industry, working at the Roundtree's factory in York. From did every job from packing Smarties to uh, wandering around in a boiler suit fixing, you know, polo machines. Um, I did all of it for for a few months, um, and then I went off to Birmingham to do engineering so I went straight into a it was a degree called a course where you went straight into a master's so it was a master's in mechanical engineering mm. um a four-year course and I lasted two terms <laughs> <laughs> because it wasn't for me really at all I enjoyed university life perhaps a little too much right. um it, it but it just wasn't for me I didn't really like engineering at all right yeah. so you were let you in in it in at university for less than a year yeah I came back at the Easter yeah, I did two terms and came home. And did you then choose a different course to go to university? And, and what was that decision yeah, based so, on? So I then I then worked for a bit. So I worked quite a bit as a nanny. 
So then the, the stuff around children started to come in. I'd always done babysitting and things like that. So I worked as a nanny um, over that following year, did all sorts of other little bits of jobs, you know, that had some sort of short-term nannying contacts where people couldn't look after the kids in the summer. So I was looking after them. Um, and then I reapplied to university, to a, to a, a university closer to home, to do a course called Interdisciplinary Human Studies, which was the opposite end of the spectrum to engineering. So it's philosophy, psychology, sociology, and literature. And that's what I went off to do um, at Bradford, um, having had sort of a year and a bit out working right. and stuff. So, yeah, so then I went to do to do that degree, which I found very hard because it was a lot of reading and I still didn't know I had this condition called Erlen syndrome. Right. So it was it was hard work. I got a two two, um, yes. and I fought, I fought hard for that. Um, yeah, I had to work very very hard to get through that. Really, wasn't right. it at all? Um, and then I did PGC after that to become what's a PGC? Uh, oh, postgraduate the... certificate in education. Yeah. Yes, yeah. teaching teacher training. Right, very good. Uh, and did your sense of vocation about being a teacher did that arise? because your mother or what you were experiencing with children you know what was the what was the driver I guess it I guess I'd I'd call it an insight at some point I just Mm. realized that I liked um being with children and I liked looking after children and I liked talking to children and it just it just made sense then that it would be teaching and it was really funny because I remember my mum saying to me I always thought you'd be a teacher and I thought well you might have mentioned it to (laughs) me I wouldn't have to go through all this nonsense. She hadn't mentioned she thought I should be a teacher. But when I look back, I was always I was always the one who was organising the other children, even when I was younger. Um, so so it was always there, this kind of, I liked, I loved babies and little children, you know, right from when I could pick up a baby myself, I wanted to be the one like looking after children and stuff. So it was, it was always there. Um, but I hadn't quite synced into it. And I think I would say, partly because at school, they were trying to, that you know the engineering people were trying to get me and into engineering partly because partly by selling the money to me I think yes yes that's how they were doing it really it was was very much about that and I I kind of followed that because at 17 18 that looks exciting doesn't it money yeah let me ask you did you um you know you, you you took maths physics and chemistry at a level yeah I mean these are not easy subjects to take if you don't have the mindset to do that so you obviously must have had you know a scientific mindset so how did you feel in comparison of, to studying those and then studying the subjects that you studied like philosophy and psychology and literature at uni how did your brain kind of transit transition from the science field to the kind of humanities field Mm. I mean with difficulty is probably the best answer um I was interested in those subjects I really enjoy them I still enjoy psychology um you know a big part of of how I help people is by a simple understanding a simple psychological understanding so I really do enjoy people and understanding more about people and how they work and things like that I always have and I love philosophy too um it, it just it was it was hard it was a hard thing to do um so I had the interest in the subjects but then getting the information off the page was really hard for me because of this issue with with reading but but you found maths and physics and chemistry easy easier 
relatively yeah i, I find that that's yeah. fascinating that, that that's fascinating yeah. for me because um normally you would think that someone who had that in you know who had that facility what came easy to them that they would find a career path that would be more easy for them and then you mm. chose something that was harder for you and have developed a career path on, on what is actually harder for you to to assimilate and integrate that's a, a fascinating mm. difference yeah I mean it's interesting my mum became a tax consultant so she worked with numbers so she's very mathematically minded I am both my children are very very good at maths they always have been right from being very little so there's something I feel, feel like there's something genetic there that, mm. that you know mathematically minded I'd say both my children are probably on the autistic spectrum or that not undiagnosed but I think they've got a leaning a leaning towards that again that comes with they say that if two parents have got very mathematical brains they're more likely to create a child who's on the autistic spectrum so wow. it was interesting yeah so yeah it's there it's, it's a genetic thing I think is the maths okay so so um your dreams of success changed from the engineering field into the humanities field and then taking up teaching um what did success look like for you in terms of your future projections that you may have made around that time at university well, more so once I'd done my PGC and stepped into a school in my first job, headship was front and centre of my mind the minute I started teaching. I, it was very quick, very quick that I realised I wanted to be a head teacher. And that is almost unheard of, I think, in education. There's not many people who go into teaching saying, I want to be a head teacher. Um, an awful lot of people become a head teacher completely by accident because they, they get to deputy headship and they're kind of okay with that. And then the head teacher goes off sick or disappears for some reason. And suddenly they're, they're acting head and before they know it, they're the head teacher. So, it, you know, not a lot of people go into it, but I went into it determined to become a head teacher, which um, meant that I pushed myself up the career ladder perhaps mm. a little more rapidly than was good for mm. me physically, mm. you know. And what what did you put that down to? You know this this kind of ambition. You know, you step into a primary school, you you just finish your teacher's training, and then suddenly you think, right, I'm going to be a, a head teacher. So what like, is it? In, what is it in your brain you think that made that happen? A few little nuggets. So the first permanent job I had, the the head teacher was dreadful. <laughs> so there was a bit of I can do better than that. Um, right. And and she was in the process of being no confidenced by the staff, which is almost unheard. I don't think it ever happens now, but you can actually call your union in and you can attempt to no confidence the head teacher and have her removed from the school. And the staff at this school were in the process of doing that when I joined the school. I had no idea before I stepped through the door that was going on. So there's a bit of that. There was a bit of, you know, thinking I could do better with people yeah. and just treat them differently to how this woman was doing it. Um, there was money. Uh, there's no two ways about it there was definitely a drive around money and and I'd say the third piece was just feeling good enough I I felt like I was seeking my self-affirmation I suppose in the outside world mm. by by going up in my career so each time I got to a new job I'd kind of get there because I wanted I thought this new job would be the thing this next promotion would be the thing that made me feel 
good enough about myself. And of course I got there and it never did because it doesn't work that way. We don't get that mm. affirmation from the outside world, really. It mm. has to come from inside us. Um, and so I moved jobs pretty much every four years to a promotion every single time. Um, apart from my first job, I was there for five years, but I was off on two maternity leaves during that time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, so I, you know, I literally had the kind of seven, seven, eight months, maybe maternity leave and then went back full time both times. Um, right. So tell me about um, your marriage um, and, and what, what triggered that and, and um, why you decided to have children. I'd always wanted children like from yeah forever can't imagine I've never had a time when I haven't wanted no knew that I wanted to have children um so I mean the honest truth of it is that first of all you know I liked him I met him at university when I was doing my degree he was in the process of failing his first year for the second time when I met him which should have been a bit of an alarm bell but wasn't he was he needed looking after so this whole mothering thing that I have very strongly in me came out in the man that I chose so I chose a man who I thought I could help Mm. really like I liked him I fancied him and all that stuff but really then then when it got into kind of getting into relationship I got into relationship with him because I thought I could make him better and I thought I could help him so my story about him was he went to boarding school when he was six my story about him was poor man he's never been loved he's never had what I'm going to give him and when I give him all this love and show him what a, a, a proper home is and, and he'll change so that was the premise on which I got married not helpful really and also there was something about him fitting into my plan you know the yeah. plan was once I've got a permanent job and I've got my full maternity rights I'm having a baby you know because I because I obviously I was in a bit of a delay by then because I'd had this going to engineering having ear out yeah. blah, blah, blah. I was a bit delayed in my, in my in my journey which involved having children by the time I was 30 and all this you know like I had quite a rigid view about how my life was going to go and so he fitted in he was there at the right time and you know I did like him at first but unfortunately not probably for as long as I stayed in the marriage um right not in now <laughs> so so uh, I I recognize I recognize this uh this problem you know when you marry a man because you think you can change him <laughs> it's yeah. never going to work out no absolutely not and uh so, so what's your what's your philosophy uh, about women who would want to do that because I I think it it is it it is uh, certainly something I've did um and I wonder whether there are many other women who have relationships because they want to rescue you know it's it's the kind of uh rescue symptom that says oh I'm a rescuer I can I can make a difference and I'm going to make a difference in this person's life and they're going to change and they're going to be much better because I'm in their life so what what's your view about that well, first of all, go to the pet rescue centre and get a dog instead. <laughs> <laughs> like, or a cat or, you know, yeah. and a guinea pig or something. But but joking aside, I think it's it's when we think that the world works outside in. You know, it's like, here's this person, and if I can just make them be this shape when they're actually, you know, I mean, they can be square and they're actually a circle. Yeah. then then they'll fit into a space and they'll they'll create my happiness it's always about mm. us trying to seek a better feeling 
and and I can honestly I really do see that now looking back on my relationship with my poor ex-husband um because I do not see that it was his fault or my fault or anything it's just that it was it was built on really shaky foundations the whole thing so I would say understanding that it doesn't really matter what another person does that's not making you feel anything anyway so you know start with that basic understanding and you'll you'll just access life in a completely different way anyway but you can't change somebody else um but they do change when you start to see that they're not making you feel anything that that happens almost on its own really mm, very good okay so there's some wisdom there <laughs> um so having gone into the place of work and you know uh, beginning to build a career and having children um, and negotiating children and work um, on, on, on a kind of full-time basis. Um, what's the view that you formed about the role of women and the role of men in society and how maybe women and men interact in the workplace? So interestingly, of course, my workplace was very female heavy, mm. very few men. Um, I think I've maybe worked alongside, yeah, just a handful of male teachers throughout my career. But one thing I noticed as I went up the career ladder was that there were the higher you got up, the more concentrated the men were, mm -hmm. which is really bizarre. You look at a primary school and you go, oh, hardly any men. You go to a meeting of primary head teachers in Leeds and you go, hang on a minute <laughs> this is not right there's there's a room full of men they're not in the schools but somehow the men are climbing up and and maybe you know and the women aren't as much mm -hmm. so I think one of the things that I I've really started to see recently just through some recent reading I've done and things like that is that our entire world as including the school day uh, and the school terms and things like, they're all built around this kind of 24-hour system where you know, everybody's got the same amount of energy and everybody's going to be the same every day, whereas women are not. Women are 28-day cycles and they fluctuate. Women also have other things to do, like producing babies from their bodies. And and that, of course, um, disrupts, I suppose, our, our career progression. Of course, I didn't let that happen to me. <laughs> I just, you know, had my children and and kind of then went to juggle. So I would say in my relationship, and I suspect this is the same in many women, many women's relationships, is that, that we're the ones who are doing most of the organising and the planning and the running of the house still, despite having the career. And that was definitely true for me. My ex-husband, it turned out before we just before we split up, to be fair, that he um, is quite high functioning, but very, very on the autistic spectrum and couldn't just couldn't help me in the way I needed the help so over time and I think a lot of women do this I just took control of everything because I couldn't trust him to do anything like one time we were three months without buildings and contents insurance because I left him to do it and he just didn't do it and he forgot or thought it had done it or something like that so right. over time I became an absolute control freak um, and I think that probably happens to a lot of women they feel like they've got to just 
especially if they've gone into a relationship with a man who they're not really sure about and are trying to change because while we're trying to change them we're doing all the things that we want them to do because we they're not changing they're not going to change i'm in a much more balanced relationship now it's much much better right yeah because you're you're trying to demonstrate to them what they should be doing but they yeah, don't yeah. they don't get it they don't do it <laughs> so you become i became a control i would honestly say i was a total control freak, control freak. so yeah. you take more and more territory and uh, yeah. and the territory that you take up is really the domestic territory yeah um and the work territory did your takeover involve finances and and how it, how far yeah. did did that control take everything so the other thing that's probably worth knowing is that both my children have worked since they were tiny so not down the pit or up a chimney theater television and um, film so but know. is that you're doing or is that theirs so it it sort of just happened really they they both got involved in a drama school that turned out to be an agency then there were things offered and the kids wanted to do it so off we went onto this you know my parents were amazing during that period in terms of ferrying them off to auditions and everything um my son's been in the same job in television since he was seven and he's 21 um, wow so there was all that to coordinate as well like like not just your kids have got to go to football they're going to football club or they're going swimming to a class yeah. after school there was this major coordination of you know child one has to be here with these scripts and has to leave school at this time picked up by somebody else and all that and then child two was doing something else and that you know there was just such a lot to coordinate it was like an extra I could have literally employed a PA I think to do all of that and given them quite a few hours work but I did it all and you did it all whilst you were being a leader in in yeah. primary education yeah Wow. Okay, that's that's pretty phenomenal. <laughs> yeah, it was well, crazy. <laughs> it's the truth. I suppose in, in in that context, a man might feel a little overpowered. Oh, I'm ut I was utterly intimidating, Penny. There's yeah. No I was going to say I was going to use the word intimidating, but I thought, oh, oh no, well, oh, no. absolutely, yeah. yeah, intimidating. Okay, right. So, um, so your choice of uh, a second man or a second marriage, um must have made a very different um thought patterning in yourself what were your what were your thoughts I, I know we're sort of jumping over yeah a yeah, lot no, of other it's issues, so, cool. so. yeah it's cool it, it, I think yeah like my fiance now um we we've we've kind of worked out who's good at what and who's good at who's you know what we're good at so yeah. he's very practical he's an ex-chef so he does most of the cooking he's um you know, there's a lot of things we do together. We plan meals together. So the planning of that's done. Um, but then he'll be the one who mostly cooks the food. Um, he's very good at practical things around the house. So whereas Max Sutton didn't even do any of that. So we lived yeah. in chaos a lot of the time. So Bruce is so so we've kind of worked out. So I will be the one who books things and organizes things. Obviously, we have less booking and organizing to do because my children are 23 and 21, mostly sort themselves out now. Yeah. Uh, but I will still be the one who because my brain's good at that kind of thing, and his brain is better at other things, yeah, sure. like the practical stuff. So I think what we've found now is we've worked out what we're better at, you know. And every so often I'll give him a you know an organizational job to do and then I'll go oh no I don't do that he he doesn't do that do it I'll just do it because it's actually that's my that's my sphere of expertise and his is different so yes and I think we're more at ease with that really whereas before I was trying to make my ex-husband be like me 
Um, and he really wasn't. <laughs> so it was yes. never yes, going to work was. out. Never. Gonna well, work. I think that that's a great wisdom. Uh, would would do you think it'd be true to say that actually trying to make anyone else be anything that you want them to be is a track to failure? Oh, well, a fruitless waste of time. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, great. So that's a great learning. Um, If I can ask you about your views of of success, because obviously when you started your your primary school teaching career, your view of success was making head teacher. Yeah. So how long did that projection about what success would look like about being a head teacher last? Well, yeah, I kind of... I kind of every every step I went up the ladder, I thought that was going to be at least I was going to feel better about myself because that's really what it was. It was this underlying I'm not quite good enough thing, I think, that was a big part of this drive to go up. So it was really interesting when I when I got my first headship, I took over a school that had got um, not not done very well at Ofsted. Mm-hmm. So um, they had Ofsted February 2010. I took over in September 2010 and then just over two years later I got the good outcome and then I found that I just kind of got a bit like switched off from it really um and I started like I think I kind of I think I'd worked very very hard for that two years like insanely and and the rest of my team had as well um, worked really really hard and and so it was a bit of a, I think there is a bit after offset a bit of oh we're all right we've kind of you know um and then so then I started to do some other things like uh, I started salsa dancing, actually, because I felt I could actually add a bit of space for a life because, you know, and have a hobby, which I really started to enjoy. Um, and then so my so th- so then I was kind of OK because I was filling this this space in my life with some other things. So I was still doing my job really well, but I was starting to notice I was just going off it a bit. Um, and then just over a year after the Ofsted outcome that was good, I split up from my husband. So that was November 2013. Um, and then I started to notice more and more that I was just not, I felt like I'd lost my motivation. Mm. And I think that happened in most things because because the, the drive to get there was, oh, you're going to feel good enough when you get there and it's going to be amazing. And, and that was there to start with. And obviously with the drive to get the Ofsted again, that was, I feel good enough now because I've got a good Ofsted. Didn't quite work. Mm. So then I started to kind of, not spiral down but I started to lose motivation and not be really as and so then just not long after splitting off from my husband I decided to take a promotion which was to 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 my second headship all right so so yes I had two headships had one for four now normally in headship people stay longer than four years they don't within such a short period and I got the job and um, moved schools in September 2014 by that point, I was already struggling with sleep. I was all I was doing far too much outside school. So I was doing all the salsa dancing and I was single by then. So I'd started online dating. I was going out. I had a friend of mine who was also had teachers split from her husband and we used to go out on a Saturday night. Um, yeah, we don't need to hear those stories, really. But <laughs> but, you know, it was it was all getting a little bit messy, really, my life. Meanwhile, right. obviously, I've got a 12 and 14 year old child, 12 and 40 year old children who are, um, you know, going through their teenage stuff as well. Uh, my ex-husband lives next door. That's where he moved when we split up. So there was all of that as well. And so there was a lot, a lot going on in my life. It was all a bit crazy. And then I took a promotion. And of course, I first when I first got to this school, again, I had that elation because I always yes. have the start. Oh, yeah. yeah, this is it. 
But the funniest thing is, not even funny, actually, not funny, ha-ha, funny, peculiar, was that I very quickly started to think, oh, but what's after this? Yeah. That was that was there really quickly that time. It was really quick. It was like, oh, oh, so in four years' time, I'm going to need to do something else because every four years I'd moved jobs. And and it was it was just it was really strange. I, I, um, I started to see a life coach. Right. Because I was like, Oh, wanting to explore with them what I would do afterwards. Yeah. Right. Completely yeah. Insane. Really. When you yeah. think about it. Yeah. Cause I think if you put your, if you measure your success by an mm-hmm. external achievement. Yeah. When you achieve that uh, point, what happens is, is what I call the catch up syndrome. Because the catch-up syndrome means, okay, so you, you've you've set the target, you've achieved the target, but having caught up, it's never what you project is going to be like. No. You never get that satisfaction. You never get that, um, you know, that that um, you know sense of achievement that you thought you were going to get, and that validation that you thought you would get, and then you either have to put another projection on that's external or you have to make the move which it sounds like what you were doing with uh, the life coaches to sort of mm. move from the external validation into an internal orientated position so tell me about that journey yeah so I think I think for me that it was like not just success it was like it was as if my entire well-being depended mm. on where I was in my career and of course right. when I got there well-being is inside it's got nothing to do with the outside world so it was just like an empty shell when I got there it wasn't there so interestingly um I wish I had the notes in front of me but I I do I have kept copies of the notes I made when I was doing this life coaching and it's what I'm doing now is what I said I wanted to do so that's quite nice and interesting okay. thing. but I did a bit of life coaching but then what really happened then was that I started to spiral into serious ill health um so from the January of 2015, um, I my sleep went really to pot. I yeah, I was I was jittery a lot of the time, not sleeping, not well, and in the end I burnt out. So yeah. Um, and and obviously you're a very self-conscious and aware person. So thinking back on it now, what do, what do you think was making was causing that spiral into ill health um, and into the stress and the anxiety and the overwhelm, which obviously you now coach people around. Mm-hmm. Uh, but obviously you were, went into it. So from the standpoint now of your greater wisdom, what do you see was causing or triggering those factors? Because many women and men, I suppose, also fall into uh, into those triggers. So so what do you, what do you perceive it now? So it was like an insane game of whack-a-mole, you know, that game where the heads bob up and you have to hit them down with a hammer. It's a kid's uh-huh. game. I think it's also like a an arcade game, the big version. Right. So basically these heads bob up and you have to keep the game is to try and keep the keep the heads down. So I I fundamentally thought that feeling okay was about me controlling the outside world. Mm. Control has been massive in all of this. So and there was a lot of things that I wanted to be different to how they were in the outside world. So I did a lot of things in the outside world to try and control the outside world. But on top of that, it meant I had a lot of things to think about. So I was 
just ridiculously stressed. So whether it was the men I was talking to online dating, whether it was my nights out and how they needed to be, or whether it was my kids' careers or behavior of my ex-husband living next door with with his with the other woman or whatever, you know, like it was it was trying to control a lot of different things. Um, because I thought, like many people do, that the world works outside in. I thought that if I just get all these heads down and I can hold them down, I'll feel amazing and I'll be happy and it'll all be wonderful. And of course, it doesn't work like that, not least because the heads don't stay down. They keep bobbing up and the world is never going to be how we want it to be because it mm. just doesn't work that way. So and the other really key factor was I had no idea I was stressed. Not a clue. You thought this was normal. Absolutely. I went to the doctors about my sleep several times. And every time I went, they said, are you actually okay? And I go, yes, I'm absolutely fine. You just need to make me sleep and then it'll all be perfect. And, and, that was, <laughs> and I was like a jittering wreck to yes. seeing that. It was, it's com- comedic when I look back. It wasn't funny at the time, but, but when I look back, it was like a comedy sketch show where I was just, there's nothing wrong with me. You just need to make me sleep and then I'll be fine. Um, and of course, that wasn't the case because I was in the process of burning out quite horrendously, really. Right, right. Okay, so... Uh, tell you know tell tell us about that burnout um and how does a woman or a man recognize burnout because as you know you don't realize you're stressed and uh you think you're normal and it's because you know it's just an extension of what you've always been for the last 10 years or whatever so it just goes it just goes over to excess but how do you recognize you're in burnout so well, I mean, I didn't recognize it until I walked into work, walked out and never went back. I mean, it it was really literally, I had no idea. So I think the, the things we can look at in terms of, and it's a really fine line, I think, between developing some awareness of what are the symptoms of stress. So I've done a couple of posts on LinkedIn over the years where I've kind of said, look, this is what might be happening mm. to you. So I was getting every cough, cold, and stomach bug and in a primary school trust me there's a lot of them about and I'd never been like that so I think it's maybe about some awareness about where you're being really different so if you're normally quite a chill person you're suddenly very angry and snappy with the people around you that's something to to look at if you're normally like me super immune system you know I'd be everybody be getting the cold and I'd be like oh I don't get colds you know And, and then during this period running up to burnout everything I just permanently had a cough or a cold for months it was ridiculous um, so again, huge change there in, in me because we're all different. So I think it's okay to point to these are the symptoms of stress. But actually, I would say where you start to notice you are being very different to how you used to be mm. and where you seem to be coping with things. And now you're suddenly not where, you know, for me, sleep, sleep was the final straw. Really, I thought I had a problem with my sleep. but I had a problem with excessive stress. Um, so it, and I didn't know. So anything that suddenly changes, I think, is really key for people to look at. Because if you're a person who always gets lots of coughs and colds, then it might not be a sign that you're stressed if you get lots of coughs and colds. You just might not have a very good immune system, get some vitamin D or whatever. Whereas for me, it was the big changes that I just didn't even realise. And I think you said something about this just before. Because I'd been so stressed for such a long time, really, I've been running at this level of stress. Mm. You should be like down here. I've been like that for years, probably pretty much since since my kids were born. Um, And then it went because it just went up a little bit more and that was just a bit too much. 
yeah it wasn't even that observable really sure so when you got burnt out you said you walked into school and then for some reason you just walked out and never went back again you know it was like you know something in you took over and said right that's it we're not doing that anymore um how long did um the burnout last and how did you kind of transition through that so i'll be honest with you we're eight years on and i'm still dealing with it so it's not to be scoffed at burnout don't think you're just going to burn out this weekend and then you'll be fine so i didn't work at all for a year Um, i was i was so poorly um, I just couldn't. I, it was like every, it's like somebody had taken a syringe and sucked every bit of motivation out of my body. So I would regularly not get up till 12 o'clock, two o'clock in the afternoon. Um, I could, I could barely, I used to look at the dishwasher and burst into tears because it just looked so overwhelming. I mean, it was just, just things that I'd done in my sleep previously, <laughs> quite literally, yeah. um, you know, that I just couldn't cope with most things. Um, I needed to be looked after quite a lot. So I don't normally get emotional talking about it. I'm obviously having one of those days today, but yeah, it's still, it's still, so I'm seeing a homeopath at the moment. I've taken yes. all sorts of things over the years. I've seen functional medicine doctors, it, you know, it doesn't just disappear. So I would say after about 18 months, I was probably functioning enough to start my first business, but it's still very up and down, especially bearing in mind, I've entered the menopause as well now which is like another layer of nonsense on the top of it <laughs> another feminine problem that we yes, have to absolutely. deal with yeah I mean, i've gotten draxy thyroid as well which is also mostly a feminine problem and i've had a frozen shoulder which is also mostly a women problem so that's just yeah. yeah yes yes we we can have we can end up having a very hard time uh, unless we take good care of ourselves so yeah. i think the I, th- I think the lesson i would draw from what you've said is that you know Getting to burnout is not something to allow yourself to get to. No. Because no. the the pay, um, the cost of, of burnout goes on for years and years and years in terms yeah, of, you know, managing your own psyche um, and, and getting yourself better. Um, so I think that's a great thing to, to learn. And I'm sorry you've had to go through that and learn that, but I'm sure you're, you're a great teacher to others to make sure yeah. that they don't get there. Definitely, definitely. So um, in closing, thank you. This has been a fascinating conversation. Um, in closing, what um, what three lessons or pieces of advice could you offer to um, to our listeners about your um, about your journey and the experience of your life so far? So I think we've not really talked much about my learning of the three principles, which has been the most significant thing that's changed my life. I came across it in January 2020. Having been on a path of trying to fix myself for a really, really long time. So whether it's with me or someone else, find out about the three principles. Learn this really simple understanding of how the mind works. Um, And so that's my first my first thing that I would love everybody to learn, because I think it's got life changing potential, not just for individuals, but for the world. Mm. And I think the second thing connects to that, and that is it's self-awareness, really, that that's the most vital thing. It's like I was saying earlier, that difference between, um, you know, just 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 seeing those differences in yourself and realizing that that's a sign that you're becoming stressed or something's not okay, without that level of self-awareness, 
it just it just passed me by when it was happening to me before but it wouldn't now I'm much more self-aware but without loads of judgment not you're wrong or there's something wrong with you but just that that nice level of non-judgmental self-awareness is so is so vital and look after yourself really like you've only got one physical body to live in for, for for the whole of your life look after it and it'll it will serve you well um and eating well you know sleeping well getting a bit of exercise not too don't have to be mad but you know just do to do, do take care of yourself i think that'll be the third thing brilliant thank you very very much that there's a great great uh great piece of advice and uh and ones that that i think um we should um we, we can take the benefit of. So thank you very much for this interview. It's been great talking with you and goodbye for now. Thank you, Penny. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to Standing in Her Power Global. What has been your biggest takeaway from this conversation? Please join our Facebook group to give us your feedback and engage in the discussions there. Share this episode with others who may be interested. Thank you for listening and we'll meet again in the next episode of Standing in Her Power Global.